I don't think that the FBI will be that upset with you if you call and say, I'm not sure yeah. if we're supposed to reach out to you yet or not, but here's what's going on. I think Putin is is, is running up our SMS bill. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Working Code with your three hosts who never make off by one errors, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 125. And on today's show, Carol will not be joining us. We were just sitting down to record and water started coming out of her ceiling fan. So mm. and good luck, Carol. Hope yeah, that turned out luck. okay. But An uh, unexpected water feature. <laughs> she had to go. <laughs> so that's two weeks in a row. I feel bad for, for going without her, but the show must go on. So as usual, we will start with our triumphs and fails. And Ben, looks like it's your turn to go first. Yeah. So last week I talked about just feeling pretty meh in general. And uh, my failure is that I'm going to keep being meh for a while. I just, uh, I'm having almost like a little bit of an existential crisis. I I think. As you all know, I'm migrating slowly from the old platform at work to the new platform at work. And I, and I started to look through the code and um, don't love it. it. (laughs) And here's the thing, right? It's like, if I, let's say I was unemployed right now and the job that I need to be doing here at work was in a, in a opening, a job opening. And I'm reading it and I'm looking at the technologies I'm like, you know, heavy on react, heavy on Golang, heavy on microservices. I feel like I would not apply for this job. Mm. Like it's not, it's not the kind of job I would opt into if I had a pick of a lot of things. And that's like a really weird place to be in. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, we've talked a little bit about the Peter principle in the past where you get failing upward. Yeah. Yeah. You get promoted to where you become inadequate for the job. And I almost, it's, this is like, this is like some sort of corollary to that. Like I've been moved into a project where I'm no longer effective and I don't know it's, it's, it's a weird place to be. I'm feeling very out of sorts and I'm not like a hundred percent confident that I'm going to, that I'm going to get there, but it's still early, so we'll see. Do you still feel like you are, are maybe married is not the right word, but like tied to the project and the product in a way that is rewarding? Like you still want to support the same product and, and customers or? I mean, I, I love, I always love our customers. If, if anything, I think the fact that I have not been very customer facing lately has been a big part of my darkness here. I do get a lot of energy from from dealing with customers. If not directly, then at least like feeling like I'm building something for them. And that's not really been the kind of stuff that I'm doing right now. So that's you know, we all we all we all have our strategies for success and and my strategy for success is being a little bit more customer facing than I am today. So maybe maybe getting back to that will be helpful. There's always positions open on the help desk. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. Actually, I think some of our help desk people have are like part time now as QA engineers as well. Hmm. Oh, we wow! Have, as part of the cost cutting initiative, we we got rid of all of our, our our QA people were primarily contractors, and we've unfortunately got rid of them. What does Facebook call that? They're the year of what's the, what's the term that they call it? You're talking year about of like efficiency. when they announce layers on year, layers. Yeah, yeah, year of efficiency. Yeah, I I had talked. Maybe a couple of months ago, I had been listening to a podcast with Chris Coyer, 
and he was doing a 10 year review of the, uh, of CodePen. He was, it was basically the podcast was him and his co-founder and they were talking about all the things they've learned over the last 10 years. And one of the things that they brought up, which feels so timely for me right now is to only learn one thing at a time. And they talked about moving from, I think it was like Ruby on Rails over to Golang for some things. And they weren't building new functionality and learning Go at the same time. They were taking existing functionality and porting it over to Go so that the business logic and the requirements weren't something they had to learn. They were learning the Go and they were doing it in a very safe context. And, and there's a part of that that makes a lot of sense to me. So when I look at my transition from the old platform, the legacy platform to the modern platform, it's like I'm learning new architecture, new languages, new permissions models. Like I'm learning, learning like a buttload of new stuff at the same time. And it, and it really drives home how that's not, it's not the best ideal. Yeah. 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 Sub, sub ideal, subpar. (laughs) So that's me still meh, hopefully better next week. Tim, what do you got going on? Well, I, I don't have a failure or triumph. I was just calling status quo. Nothing great, nothing bad. One interesting thing that we learned today. So we had a a call, organizational white call with our legal counsel to talk about how to deal with a data breach. So, I mean, they're happening more and more. I mean, so our, our, we're part of a big multinational company that buys, you know, other software companies and just overall around the you know around the company there are data breaches that happen and ransomware and and you know basically the the whole thing was really to talk about how to communicate with your customers when you're doing this because there is some legal liability that you need to be aware of when you're dealing with talking to your customers and you know i mean none of this is trade secret so i could talk about it but it's, i mean basically it boiled down to don't say forward-looking statements about the breach because you know you, you know you're you know email you're getting constantly emailed or called by your customers and they're like you know what's going on how long is this going to happen what can i tell and they always want to know when's this going to be over right or or when is this going to be fixed or what's what's been exposed and it's an ongoing developing situation so you really you have some information at the time but you rarely have complete information until after it happens and even after it happens you don't necessarily always have a hundred percent insight into what happened. So one of the biggest things they said was, you know, number one, you, you, you as a team, as a company, you nominate one person, be the source of truth to contact. And that person talks to the customers. And then when they ask about forward looking statements, you never give them any forward looking statements. You don't say, Oh, we think we'll have this fixed, you know, tomorrow. Cause then tomorrow comes around and it's not fixed, and now you've lost credibility. Now they don't believe you. Now they think you're lying or they're hi- you're hiding something. And then you set a, 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 a cadence for communication. You don't promise resolution. You say, listen, I will call you every three hours or email you. There will be communication every three hours in, you know, during working hours that, that will tell you what's going on, what we know to be true. And that's all you ever tell is what you know to be true. And if you don't know anything different from the last three hours, you just say that. Right, no new information. Still continue to working on it, stuff like that. Let, so, me, let me ask a quick question because I know Adam's been working on the SOC compliance stuff. Is a I hesitate to call this disaster recovery, but is this kind of a thing something that has to be documented as part of SOC compliance? 
I don't necessarily think that exactly what Tim to, Tim is describing, like the the policy for how you will communicate with your customers and, and like, you know, no forward looking statements, that sort of thing is a requirement. But you have to have a disaster recovery plan. You have to, right. you know, there are requirements in this ballpark. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, so this really isn't a disaster recovery kind of thing, right? This is, you know, a data breach. Yeah. You, do, you know, it's either a data breach where someone has exposed your data and you're trying to figure out what's been exposed or it's an attack that it basically has disabled your system where it's not available. And, you know, right. people are trying to figure out when, when that happens. So, I mean, we do have a policy for that. It's not part of SOC, but that is a policy that we have about, you know, who are the people that are allowed to speak to the customers in regard to what's going on. And, you know, honestly, these things, it's like they happen, they happen at the worst possible times. <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm not saying we haven't, we actually have not been through this. This hasn't happened to where I work now, but it has work happened at companies I've been associated with in, in the past that are inside the same corporate shell. And it's not fun because it's like, you know, you got people who can't run their business because your stuff is being tied up. And a lot of times there's not a whole lot you can tell them. Yeah. I know at work we have like a, that we have security vulnerabilities that are listed by like priority. Like there's mm-hmm. a high priority, yep. medium priority, low priority. And then we have to have remediation timelines associated with them like a high high impact vulnerability has to be resolved within like 36 hours or something and like a medium has to be done in like two weeks and a low has like 60 days or something but i i wonder is that kind of stuff do you think part of a sock or is that just something we have like as an internal standard that's probably a mix i mean one of the things that I had to do as we were setting up i'm not sure if this was part i guess it was probably part of both pci and sock 2 was, you know, you have to go through and identify your risks and you have to classify those and you have to say, okay, this is how we are dealing with that risk. Some of it you can mitigate, you know, you can buy insurance or you can take steps to prevent it, you know, or or you can just accept the risk. You can say, this is just part of doing business in this industry or whatever. And, you know, if, if it's bad enough, right? Like there are some things that are like, okay, yeah, the risk of that is happening is pretty low. And if it does happen, who cares, right? You know, we'll, we will rebuild that database from a backup or something, right? Like, but then there are other things. It's like, okay, well, yeah, that technically could happen. And I guess if it did, we would just, you know, declare bankruptcy and shut down shop. Like, you know, but we're not going to, we're not going to spend a hundred thousand dollars in six months to try and prevent it. You know, do you ever have those? I have these dark moments where I think about what would happen in a worst case scenario situation. Like, like, let's just say I accidentally dropped really important customer table or like, Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know, I deleted the wrong thing or I exposed something like really, really critical. Yep. I I always think to myself, would I just quit immediately? Like, would I just resign? (laughs) Like, hand and be like, I'm sorry, this was my fault. I don't deserve to to work anymore. Manager's office with your resignation letter and be like, I have two pieces of bad news for you. (laughs) (laughs) Or is it like a samurai falling on his own sword? Right. And then I think, but, or is it somehow more honorable to stay and try to help remediate? Or it's like, and And then get fired. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. But like, I I don't know. I don't know what people would expect if they expect the immediate resignation. You always want to get fired that we get. 
get to collect unemployment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'd get fired for cause, I assume. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah. then you, then, then like, you can't like use that as a reference or anything, right? Like yeah. if you get fired, that that's a dishonorable discharge. If you get, if you quit, it's under those circumstances, you're not going to use that as a reference you, either. You have plausible deniability if you quit. Yeah. It just wasn't a fit. It's a golden parachute. Yeah. One thing that comes up for me, like every single sock round, I think we have to do it annual or biannual. I can't remember what we do at work. And this comes up every single time, which is GitHub. So I don't know if this is a GitHub specific thing. I guess it is. Maybe we have a rule at work as part of the SOC compliance that all every code that gets merged into our primary branch and deployed to production has to have a pull request associated with it. And that pull request has to be reviewed by someone who is not the author of the code. Yeah. So the way GitHub works, and I don't know if this is Git or just like, I don't know if this is GitHub or Git itself, but let's say I'm working on master and I branch and I say, this is Ben's feature branch. And then I have a random idea mid feature and I branch that branch. So now I have mm-hmm. Ben's feature branch too. Mm-hmm. And I get to a place on that. And I'm like, oh, you know what? This is actually better. I'm just going to get this secondary feature branch reviewed. Someone reviews it. And then I merge it into master and I deploy to production. Because the, the git commit, the SHA from that first feature branch is technically included in that second feature branch because it's a branch of a branch. Mm-hmm. GitHub will automatically show it as having been merged in because it technically was. It just wasn't part of like the original feature. And but only if you don't add more commits to that branch, right? Yes, correct. Which is often the case. Like if I'm, if I'm, well, not often, mm. the, like the once a year that this comes to bite me in the butt. They'll, and then they'll come back to me and they'll say like, hey, you didn't have someone review this PR, but it got merged. I'm like, yeah, GitHub did that automatically. Like it's not me. <laughs> and then I have to, I have to show them evidence Mm-hmm. This was part of another PR, and that PR is reviewed. It's so frustrating. I wish GitHub so just left it alone. It didn't do you anything. Can, you can take the SHA of any commit on GitHub and search for it in the, like in the, in the list of pull requests. You can drop a SHA in, even the short SHA, like the first eight characters or something mm-hmm. like that. And it will return a list of all pull requests that include that SHA. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think what I usually end up doing is the code that in question... I have to git blame it in GitHub. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know how to do that on the command line. But you know, I, I go into the GitHub UI and I go to the mm-hmm. file and I go blame and I go down to the lines in question and I look to see which commit they came from and which PR they were from. And that's usually how I I, I get the evidence, but it's just frustrating. Sorry, oh, yeah. that's it's just end of side rant there. That's a good one. We talked about this last week. No apologizing. There you go. <laughs> well, that's me. How about you, Adam? Well, I'm going to go with the triumph. I guess that's we got the whole spectrum here voice. tonight. Yeah. I, I haven't done a ton of coding in the last two weeks since I've, I've been back from my vacation, but I've done some. And most of it has been in support of my PCI and SOC 2 projects. So, you know, one of the requirements is that you do vulnerability scanning on your software and on your configurations and stuff. And we had a bunch of user accounts with stale access keys associated with them. And so I had to go, okay, well, where are all these access keys used and what are they used for and try to shore that all up? You know, like the easy thing to do would just be to rotate the keys and update them in all of the bajillion places we've pasted keys in, all the environment variables and things. But I'm taking this as an opportunity to make things right, if not, or I'm sorry, better, if not right. And so I've been learning a lot about 
I never know if I should say I am or I am, but the, mm-hmm. the access management tooling. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, it's not just an AWS thing. Like to me, it's an AWS thing. I've never seen it anywhere else, but I think that it's supposed to be like patterns and, you know, behaviors and things. It's like a whole set of principles and, and AWS just also calls theirs IAM or whatever. But right. So like, you know, for example, you know, if we had a Lambda function that would read files and write files on S3 and maybe it needed to interact with SNS and SQS and, you know, like contact another server on our VPC, right? Like all of those permissions would have been applied to a user account. Sometimes they would be shared user accounts for various things that are very similar, or sometimes they would be like a unique user account specifically for this Lambda function because the we were young and naive and the thing we knew how to do was to like, okay, copy and paste this code snippet and here's where you drop in your the, the access key and the secret key and, and it works, right? And so we were like, okay, we'll, we'll just figure out the, the do it better later. Well, now is later. And so now I'm figuring out, okay, like this is how I say, here's a Lambda function and here's all the services that, that it needs to access and I can create a role and the Lambda function can be executed with that role and the role has access to the things and there's no like key management involved. It's just sort of inherited or assigned access levels, which is very nice because now I don't have to worry about rotating those keys and all that. But it's very complicated to figure out or I guess I should say it was very complicated to figure out and and I'm now getting better and better at it. But I spent the majority of my week just going back and updating old software to like, okay, what was I thinking six years ago when I wrote this? You know, and what what services does it actually use? What did I over-provision on permissions because we're trying to do, you know, principle of least access and just trying to, you know, get, do it as close to right as I possibly can get code reviews, write tests, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, it, it's, we're moving in the right direction. And it's, yeah. it's a lot of those days where you like, you finish your day and you're like, really, that's all I did today was like, I submitted like two pull requests to update two applications to, to rip out their access key and secret key from the environment variables. But, you know, that it was a lot of work to get there. And so if it's a, not depressing. I don't know. I just, I don't feel like I have a whole lot to show for my work on those days. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the, the IAM stuff is, it's very confusing, very complex. Oh. I mean, yeah. I, I, so we have like a few like S3 buckets that are public and mm-hmm. because we use them for like to store JPEGs and PNGs that, you know, that are hosted. So that you want to share yeah. publicly. Yeah. Yeah. We want to share. Right. Yeah, exactly. But we'll get these emails on a regular basis from AWS going, Hey, this bucket is public. Are you sure you want to do that? This is insecure. And it's because it's like a group email that it's sent to. It's like, I get all these emails from people concerned. I'm like, dude, <laughs> did you hear about the new format of the TPS reports? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dudes, they're images. I don't care if they're public. No one cares. Got to name the bucket intentionally public. (laughs) Exactly. At work, I have somehow managed to lock myself out of an S3 bucket in a way that not even admins on the account can unblock me. (laughs) Impressive. (laughs) I don't even know. I don't even know what I did. I think it's just because my my access, my account is so old. It has like really weird permission on it. Yeah, that's super secure. That's right. there are, it's, it's super confusing for me as part of this ramping up on the new platform. I had to test a Lambda function because I had made some changes to, to, to something. And in order to test the Lambda function, I had to be added to an Okta group. Okta is our single sign-on provider at work. 
Mm-hmm. So I had to be added to a special Okta group. Then I had to log in to AWS using that Okta group. And then I had to use this special Chrome plugin that like switches me over to a special testing account that is somehow only working for that Okta group. And it, I, I'm like, I just have to follow the directions, but I don't actually understand anything that I'm doing. Like none of it I makes did not, sense to me. I didn't understand anything you just yeah. said. I know what those words mean, but I don't know what you were trying to explain. <laughs> you know, that's, the, that's like literally the thing I say at work all the time is I'll be like, I understood all the words in that sentence. <laughs> I have no I did idea not understand what you're talking the sentence. about. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess that's, that's our triumphs and fails. So let's, I guess, so we have two things we want to talk about tonight. We're going to do you know, sort of like a what's on your workbench, what you've been working on lately sort of thing. But before that, we figure it's time for another book club. We, and, and I think we, all here, the hosts of the podcast agree with the sentiment that our previous book club on clean code, that's a tongue twister, was not our best work. You know, it was a little, <laughs> little dry, I think. And we want to try to do better. So here's what we were thinking. We want to break the book down into chapters and we will, or not, I mean, the book's already in chapters. We want to read a couple of chapters per week and discuss those chapters on the show that week. However, to make it a little more interactive, what we're thinking is, okay, so let's just say we're going to read chapters like one through three, and we record on Thursday, so let's just say like maybe Monday or Tuesday of the week that we would record that, we want to have like a get-together, like a meet-up with our listeners in our Discord. We'll get together, we'll talk about what was in those chapters, maybe if we can share lessons learned or you know the things that people took away from those chapters. It'll kind of give us a little interactivity, and, and we can learn from you as much as you can learn from us. And then we will take what we kind of learned from that discussion and bring it onto the show later that week. And then you know, we'll just do that week to week to week. So we do tend to record typically two weeks in advance. So you'll be hearing those discussions two weeks after. So really, if you want to participate in these things, I guess we should probably like maybe even create a dedicated channel for it in our Discord. But that's the idea. We certainly would love to hear your feedback on the idea. We'd love to have you participate in it. The whole, like, that, that's basically as far, as much as we know at this point, the details of like when we would get together, how long we would get together for, in what way we want to get together, if it's just like through text chat or if we want to do like a video chat, that's all sort of still up in the air. So I guess this is your invitation to join our Discord, which you can join by going to workingcode.dev slash Discord and look for the book club channel which I will be creating as soon as I have a moment to, to take my face away from the microphone. And, and we'll figure it out there together. And we hope you participate. So if, I'm, if I understand correctly, I think we discussed a little earlier a book idea. It may or may not be the first book that we read in this format. But we talked about The Phoenix Project, which is a book that we've discussed on the show previously. Not, not really discussed, but we've mentioned on the show previously as being a good book. And we've, I think most of us on the show have read it. So, but it'll be, I, I've been wanting to reread it again lately. Anyway, I think it'd be a good reminder. Um, I think I'm at a good point in where, where my company's multi-tenant efforts are at, where we're kind of like at this, like everything is on fire. We have to keep making progress. <laughs> and we also have to fix the, the problems with our architecture and our systems all at the same time. That's kind of like one of the big themes throughout this book. And so like, seems like it would be a very relevant time to reread that one. So that's what's going through my head. Any, any of you guys have anything you want to add? 
No, I think that makes sense. I like the idea of breaking it up into weekly segments so that it's not a, a, a big giant review at the end. That's, you know, it's hard to remember yeah. stuff. Yeah, exactly. And also in doing that, I think that we can keep the discussion about the chapters relatively short. We can make that like a 10, 15 minute part of every show. It's also less pressure on people who want to follow along. Yeah. You know, like they don't have to be done with the entire book at the same time. Yeah. Okay, so what's on the workbench? I mean, I've I mentioned a little bit earlier, I've been pretty heads down on PCI and SOC 2 stuff. I could give a brief update on where things are with that, but I don't know that that would be super interesting. Anybody else have anything you want to throw out there? Unfortunately, I'm working on PCI. <laughs> it's that time of year, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we do ours around every May. We just had our, our pen test, which, you know, it's always fun to have a white hat hacker going after your stuff. But yeah, we, we I mean, we pass with flying colors. We have one little minor vulnerability that wasn't even I mean it's like a low level so they just passed it they were even like you know good job guys well done nice so, nice yeah well i know that you have talked about adventures with twilio recently oh yeah i want and, to hear an update um, on that and we have an update on our twilio adventures which is that as i think i've mentioned before in the for, show for sms yeah yeah as yeah. i think i've mentioned this on the show that we have Someone who is just mm. <laughs> spamming yeah, people, their two-factor authentication codes, which literally has no value for them other than it's forcing us to spend money. And it's, it's just, it's so aggressive. In the last attack, the security engineers were following it and, and you know, evaluating the attack vectors through our Cloudflare WAF and looking through logs and everything. And it was something like at one point, they were signing up with like 500 unique IP addresses. Like they were signing up user accounts and doing all this stuff. And it's, it's gotten to the point where like, we don't really have a great solution. And our, our midterm goal is actually just to remove Twilio from the product. Wow. Like we just, we don't know what to do about it. So, so I mean, you're using Twilio to send SMS with people's two factor auth codes. Are you planning on, taking it out by offering a different alternative like yeah, email yeah through, and, uh, through email okay which i mean i don't know it seems like that opens up other vectors but at least yeah at least the vectors don't cost money or oh, that's not yeah. true they do cost money but not in order to it's like people were sending sms messages to to like uganda and places where and this is something i learned as part of this whole process i thought you know, when you when you sign up for Verizon or AT and T, and they're and they're like an SMS costs, you know, a penny. I thought mm-hmm. that was a worldwide phenomenon, like anywhere oh, is a yeah, penny no. to send. Totally not true at all. In fact, sending it to some countries is stupid expensive. In Can't the, you block where it goes? So yes. So in Twilio, you can go in and there's geo coding. There's like mm-hmm. geo permissions, and they list like all these really like hundreds of regions around the globe. And like, we've literally just been turning off regions after they get attacked. And it's just, it's, you know, it is like we're understaffed and, and we just want to like the easier solution is just to remove SMS from the product. You said you're using Cloudflare. I wonder if they could do anything for you. Like that's kind of their whole business or that's their, I think that's their premier offering right is they're like you know you're being ddosed okay we can help you with that so it's crazy these so that that was my thought as someone who doesn't know that much about cloudflare and 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 the security engineers are like they're looking into all this stuff 
these attacks are, are like really sophisticated. We've been tweaking our rate limiting and, and all kinds of logic and the attackers find they're continuing to find the, the like cadence that will fall under the bars that get tripped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it's like, I, 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 it's costing them money, right? Like it's costing them money to spin up mm-hmm. these Amazon instances. I assume like said, Amazon, I, I guess is so cheap. I mean, if it's been going on this long, it's, I doubt it's Amazon, right? Somebody, somebody is, it sounds like somebody is doing this because they got a vendetta or they want to harm you. And then they're like a competitor that want to, want to take you out. It, you know, it's whatever the Russian version of envision is. <laughs> <laughs> or South Korea or North Korean. I mean, is. you did just lay off a whole bunch of people. So, <laughs> oh man, it's just it's just crazy. Yeah, that's that's weird. I, yeah, I haven't thought about that. I mean, they, people can like spam your your texting ability and just like run your rate up. Yeah. I don't know what we do in that case. So, are they are they like signing up for new accounts and and requesting two factor auth through that, or are they trying to do this for like existing accounts? It's. I believe the vector is primarily they're signing up for new accounts, but they're doing it from hundreds of different IP addresses over periods of time. Like, again, they're finding all these rate limiting ceilings and then they're adjusting their approach to, to take advantage of the, the limits. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Like, it just boggles yeah. my mind that someone's figuring this it, stuff cause out. Because I, I, I do know that spamming people for like an auth authentication is, is a way to try to... Like I forget what company it was, but a recent company got breached, and it was because they kept spamming them with with auth request to for a login for the mm-hmm. VPN, and eventually someone accidentally hit yes, and uh, now they got it. They got into the VPN, but yeah, that's a, a little bit different of a tag vector. Yeah. And then and then my question: So when we discuss these things internally, I'm always like, at what point do you get law in, right. uh, enforcement involved? Like. Yeah. And people are like, well, I don't know if any rules are being broken or like any laws are being broken. I'm like, I'm, I don't know. They're spending our money. They're spamming people. They're using, you know, this is happening over international networks. Like that's, mm-hmm. it feels like something illegal is happening, yeah. but I'm not a, yeah. not a lawyer. I mean, it was years ago. It's probably about 10 years ago, but the, the FBI called me and told me that so, that we were like an attack vector target that someone was was trying to hit. And I don't know how they we got on their radar, but they did. I'm like, okay, thank you. And then we like handled the issue that was like the vulnerability that was there. Crazy. But it's like, I never expected in my life I would get a call from the FBI for something that I wasn't doing illegally. <laughs> you expect those. <laughs> I expect those, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, so... I have called 911, I think, twice in my life. The the first time was when my brother and I were playing football in the house. And (laughs) I busted his head open and he was bleeding. And should I tell the whole story? It's not that long. How how old were you? you? Young. I don't remember the exact ages. I would say probably, I'm the oldest. I would guess I was probably like 12 or 13. Okay. All right. You know, with plus or minus, say, three years. Mostly minus. My my parents had just gotten their first cell phone because this was back in the day, and they decided they were going to go out and they they went to a, like a Home Depot type store. I don't remember the name of it, but it was you know they they had a green logo. I remember that, and it was like you know two miles from our house, not that far. And so they leave. They leave me in charge of my brothers, and 
we start playing football in the house, which when I say we're playing football in the house, you know, we're lining up at the, the line of scrimmage in a doorway and like tackling each other <laughs> through the doorway. And our house was basically made out of concrete. And I mm. tackled my brother and it just like the, the pressure of like smacking down on the floor Ooh. popped open the back of his head, the skin Ooh. there. And so he started ble- ah. bleeding profusely. Oh, man. And we also happened to live within like a mile or so of the fire department. So, oh, and and because my dad is a huge nerd as well, we had two phone lines, which was almost unheard of at the, at the time. This was, you know, early 90s, maybe. And so I told my brother, my youngest brother, because it was the middle brother that got hurt. I told my youngest brother to call mom and dad and tell them to come home. And while he was doing that on the like the line that the, the modem would use. I called 911 and I said, my, I, my brother hit his head and he's bleeding. I need an ambulance or something. I don't know what exactly what I said. So the, you know, the, the fire trucks are coming and my youngest brother called my parents. He's like, you need to come home. Justin's hurt real bad. And they're like, what happened? And you know, he was, he had to have been like seven, something like that. He's like, Justin's head broke open and he's bleeding to death. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. It was just this, it was like, you know, a one centimeter cut, right? Like not even half an inch, maybe a little bit bigger than half an inch. But so the paramedics come, it, it ends up not being that big of a deal. You know, I had gotten him, I laid him down on the floor. I'd put in like a towel under his head to, to soak up the blood and make him comfortable. And just in case he was going into shock, I lifted his legs and whatever. Oh, and, paramedic Adam. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was a Boy Scout. And so my parents get home and of course there's already an ambulance in the driveway. And wow. Oh man. And I guess the ambulance people like stop them on the way in and like, everything's fine. It's okay. So my dad comes in and he's mad because I put my brother on the carpet in the living room instead of on Skip the linoleum blood. in the kitchen. We were, we were like between the kitchen and the living room. There's carpet in the living room, linoleum in the in You the know kitchen. how hard it is to get blood out of carpet? Exactly. Well, you know what? Pro tip, it's not. Peroxide will take it right out of the carpet and and doesn't discolor the carpet. So there no. you go. There's your, the more, your blood pro tip. Good to know. The more you know. Keep that one in my back pocket. Yeah. How did we get on this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> Tim yeah. was telling a story, I think, and, and it reminded me of that. Man, now call I feel bad. Call 911, I think. Yeah. Calling law enforcement. No, FBI. FBI called me. Yes, okay. FBI called me. Yes. And the, the second time that I ever called law enforcement or called 911 was because I wanted to just like call the police and report people setting off fireworks at like 2 a.m. on New oh. Year's Eve when it was like, you know, Monday night and my tri- my baby is crying and, you know, whatever. And like, I, I, I spent like half an hour trying to find the number for the local police on their website and stuff. And I just, I couldn't find anything where anybody would answer. And finally, I was just like, so fed up. I called 911. And I said, look, I'm just calling about noise. I'm sorry. I don't, ha- I don't have anywhere else to call. I tried the number. It didn't work, whatever. So they're like, no, it's fine. You can call us for that. And uh, yeah, so I, I do all that to say, <laughs> I don't think that the FBI will be that upset with you if you call and say, I'm not sure yeah. if we're supposed to reach out to you yet or not, but here's what's going on. I think Putin is 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 running up our SMS bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So uh, I mean, yeah. Does anybody have any Twilio slash SMS updates on on the new regs that are coming down? And I mean, so ba- basically, what I've done is I've converted all of our long code numbers, which are the local numbers, to 
toll-free numbers, and that's just kind of handled it. Hmm. So, so you, you convert them to those, and then you, so when you convert, when you use the 800 number, because even if it's unregistered, they do allow, I forget the numbers, I, I posted it to someone on Discord, on our Discord channel, but once you register it, it's not, they, honestly, I don't think they even check the registration because they, they want to know, like, what are you using it for? Are you doing, is this for adver- unsolicited ab- advertising, which it's, ours is not, you know, it's just. Isn't that illegal? Like, <laughs> unsolicited I mean, that's advertising, what, that's, that's, what, that's called that's what spam. Tra- yeah, that's what they're trying to stop, right? So who's going to answer yes? <laughs> right, exactly. Who's going to answer yes? And then they want to, they like, they want to see your privacy policy and different things on your website. And it's like, I'm doing this on behalf of my customers. And some of my customers don't have a privacy policy. And I ask them to put one up for this reason. And they, they say they, they never do it because they're lazy. And so I just put like a random page on their website, the about us. Here's a summary had, of yeah, which uh, yeah, we've been in business for 150 years and blah blah blah, and we sell insurance and and they've all gone through. <laughs> I, I don't, nice. I don't think they even check. I honestly don't think they even check. But yeah, so you you fill out this form, and you submit it, and basically I give like the the, the body of the general text that we're sending. So because I guess they do some pattern matching when the text goes through, but even then, now that we're registered and verified, they still block some stuff as spam. And I don't know. I have no way of knowing what they're filtering. It's a super small portion of the text that we send out, but they'll block some of them as spam. Hmm. So, so what I do is I just I log the callbacks. So we, you know, the we use Plivo for our for SMS, and Plivo has a callback function. It calls back or, and so I log that and say, okay, this text got blocked for spam. I just resend it like two hours later, and it goes through. So. Because some of these texts aren't like immediate. It's not like some of them aren't lo- trying to log into something. It's just like we're sending you a copy of your receipt or just to notify you that your policy is you know, expiring or canceled or whatever and urging you to pay. So, yeah, the second time I send it through, it goes through. So, mm. But it costs me to send it twice. Right, of course. Even if, even, if it's not, even if it's not delivered, it costs me. So that's what I'm doing. I'm just making everything toll-free numbers. Yeah. So you said uh, a long code. Is that just like a 10 digit phone number or random? Yep. Okay. Local, a local 10 digit. And then you have short codes, but like short codes are stupid expensive. I mean, they're, st- I mean, tens of thousands it's, of dollars. I, honestly, I believe that telecom companies, phone companies are just going to continue to come up with these features that they can charge you for because they're new, right? Like when texting mm-hmm. came out, it was like 25 cents per received and 25 cents yeah. per sent text message. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 I I remember, so, I mean, a lot of our listeners will know Char- Charlie Earhart, early in the days of texting, he didn't have texting on his phone. Mm-hmm. So if if you, well, he did have it, it just cost him, he didn't pay for it. And so if you sent him a text, I got like this long email, like everything from Charlie is long, mm-hmm. uh, whenever he, t- whenever he types his, a story. It's, it's the thing with his keyboard, it, it won't allow him yeah. to send mm-hmm. a short email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why he doesn't tweet. So I got this long email, because I texted him a message, I was trying to get in touch with him, he wasn't responding, so I like sent him a message, and he sent me this long email explaining why it's important that I not text him because he doesn't because he gets charged for it. And I'm like, Jesus, dude, just pay for the texting. It's the future of the future. You're computer programming, old man. <laughs> oh, man. But what's funny is you can still so there is an e- you could send text through email. Mm-hmm. And I do I do this for like just some like alert services I wrote years ago and I haven't bothered to change them, which cost nothing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I played around so with that like, years ago. Yeah, you can do the phone number and then like at, you know, Verizon.net or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Verizon.net. And it's some sort of, and, and it's like, I don't know. And you can only send it to people on those networks. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I just have a CF, you know, I just send it to all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't I don't know what network they're on. Smart, yeah. Yeah, I just said it to all of them, and it's like cost nothing, and they haven't stopped that. That's so I don't know what's going on with that. You know, I, one of the podcasts I listen to is How I Built This, and they have a couple of flavors. Like some is like Wisdom from the Top. There's a couple of different versions of that show, but one of the most recent ones was an interview with the guy who founded Twilio. And on the show, the guy was asking him, he's like, "This is it's crazy that it took a third party to come up with this system. Like, why is?" AT&T and Verizon not creating APIs to allow you to send text messages. And it's just, it's just interesting, the scale of business. So the guy who founded Twilio was like, well, they absolutely did, but they ran them for a year and then they look at their bottom line and they're like, you know, we make whatever tens of billions of dollars from voice and we make almost nothing from providing these APIs to developers. So we're just going to stop doing that because it Mm -hmm. really doesn't make us any money. But to a startup like Twilio, they're making all yeah. of their money from SMS messaging and voice messaging. So it, it makes sense for them. But it is crazy, like the opportunity that they didn't do just because they make so much money doing other things. Yeah, that's, I, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, I, I think that a really big companies, of course, you know, who, what do I know? I'm just you know, a small business operator. But I, I think really big companies shouldn't start like internal initiatives. They should like fund a startup. Hmm. that they own majority in, right? And then if it fails, just kill it. But I mean, yeah, there's a lot more in it. Uh, there's a lot more desire and drive if you have a, a bunch of people that are in a startup, they're being funded by a big company. Big companies like, okay, we'll see if it, what happens. We'll experiment. Right. And then if it works, you know, it, it can still be its own company. If it gets really big, we'll buy it. I mean, we'll just merge it, you know, back into us. But I don't know why they do, don't do that because... There's so much more nimbleness with a small company yeah. versus like a giant behemoth. You can't turn that big ship well, very quickly. I w- another podcast that I was listening to, and I can't remember which one it was, unfortunately. But this guy was, it wasn't a scathing review, but it was like a pointed review about Google. And he was saying, if you look at, at them over the last 25 years, he's like, they've basically made one product, which is an mm-hmm. advertising system. And every other product that they have is either slightly reinventing an existing product like Gmail or buying another product. And they talked about like Google Analytics and Google Docs and all of that stuff. These were all companies that were purchased. 17 different chat platforms. Yeah. yeah. Voice. I still don't know how Google Voice makes money. I mean, how do you give away free phone calls from the browser? Is that still a thing? I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, I never I, used it for uh, voice. I, I use it all the time. Have like two different voice numbers. I know that there were people who were using it because they could. It, it had like automatic number forwarding. I think mm-hmm. so. You could you could have mm-hmm. your Google number, which was not your personal number, but it would just turn around and call your number. Yep. Yep. My wife has a therapist, and she gives that Google Voice number to her mm-hmm. clients if they need to text her or call her or whatever. And that way, she can just like turn it off when she's on vacation or mm-hmm. stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah, I do the same. All of our customer service people use a Google Voice number. So that way they don't have to give out their cell phone number at home. I, I don't know how they make money off that. Obviously, Maybe it costs they them something to do that. Maybe they don't. Yeah. I, I think everything for Google is like, how do we drive more people to search and more people into viewing AdWords? 
right? Or at whatever ads they're yeah. doing. If they can yeah. find, like, if there's like one way where like half a percent of people who use Google Voice are looking at ads occasionally, that probably makes them enough money to cover the cost. So, like, uh, there's so much good that has come out of Google building better versions of everything. Like, uh, I, I can't imagine going back to a world without Gmail, right? Like if I had to go back to Yahoo Mail or Hotmail. <laughs> yeah, and like, oh my God, I, I've never said this to their faces, but I judge all of my friends that have Yahoo Mail and Hotmail accounts. <laughs> e- and and let's be real, even if your email domain is at like outlook.com, still judging you. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I always, the, the real ballers are the people that have like their own personalized name domain. Yes, yeah. email. I did that for a long time and I just hooked it up to Gmail back yeah, when yeah. that was free. I still have that one, but I don't like that domain anymore. So I'm kind of screwed. Well, I always thought it was funny when people had email addresses that were tied to their ISPs. So they'd have like so-and-so at cox.net or, I mean, I'm not making, my, I'm not my, making fun of Cox. MySpring. Yeah. yeah. SBC Global, Comcast. Yeah. Comcast. AOL.com. <laughs> we're aging ourselves. <laughs> it is funny. Yeah, yeah, I pay, I pay I pay the four dollars a month. My son has a me at maxwellcunningham.com. I'm like, you know what? He's so what what service are you using for that? Gmail. Okay. So you're just paying for yeah, Google four dollars a month. For, for is it yeah. you yeah. pay by the user? Google something? business. Yeah. Yeah. So. I I wanna I wanna throw a question out here to the peanut gallery. When when we had Nolan Irk on the show. I think it underscored at the very end there how subjective music tastes are. I don't know if this was part of the show or part of the after show. I use the after the show. The after show. So for those You're still wrong for not liking the Beatles, show. Ben. Yeah, I exactly. said the Beatles are not my trash. cup of tea. You said they're <laughs> trash. And, and that's obviously an opinion that varies from, I'd say, a lot of people. But music, I think, is very, very subjective. I remember there was a time where on my Pandora... Uh, without fail, a music uh, a, a musical selection would come on, and I would think to myself, "This is absolutely awful. Who is this?" And I would flip to it, and I swear, nine times out of ten, it was Tori Amos. And again, nothing <laughs> against Tori Amos, but like whatever, it sounds like nails on a chalkboard to me. But there are people who love Tori Amos. That's not the point. The point is, music is super subjective, and I started to think about that, and I started to think about how many things in this world are super subjective, like. Food tastes obviously. Tim likes the cat, the the Carolina Testicles. Reapers, and I think mm-hmm. <laughs> like some spicy tests, and uh, and I don't, and or or like movie preferences, right? I love a good action movie. If I can go into an action movie and turn my brain off, I'm a happy man. My wife could not care less about action movies, and and I think there are these genres of experience that are totally subjective, and as a society, I think we're very okay with them being totally subjective right it's okay that someone likes heavy metal i don't get it but like i'm not against them liking heavy metal i'm bringing this to a point i know my where you're going is, yeah so my point is programming i i think there's this sense for a lot of people in the programming world that that like not that there's nothing subjective about programming but there's this like weird guilt or like closed mindedness that if I don't find something enjoyable, either it's, I'm just not familiar with it. So I'm pushing it away because I'm not familiar with it. And like, Oh, I only want to know stuff that I already know. But I, I, 
I think that there is just genuinely certain things that excite people about certain types of programming and certain types of languages and certain types of databases. And, and I feel like, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like now as an adult, like, that's just okay. And I, and like, I don't want to feel guilty about that. I don't want to make other people feel guilty about that. And I don't know, I guess I'm just asking like what y'all think. Sounds like you're asking for forgiveness. Can you give me an example? Well, like take, for example, the like Lisp languages, Lisp, mm-hmm. like Clojure. I, I don't, I don't really know anything about Lisp, but I, I had to, I parentheses. Took, yeah. It's, it's just like a series of parentheses and I took a class in college and like, it's just not for me. I don't think I, I could do it at the time. Like I could do little programs in Lisp, but it was, it's just like my brain didn't work that way. And it, it's, it didn't have tag islands. It's the same. It's the same with functional programming. Like I granted, I'm not great at functional programming. So there is a, a knowledge gap for sure. But I look at the way people write functional programming and it's like, it's just not the way that my brain works. And you talk to people who really love functional programming and they're like, oh my God, it makes the code so much easier to read. And it's like so atomic and all these great things about it. And I look at it, I'm like, this is, this is awful. Like I just, mm. I can, I look at it and like my brain glazes over, but then I'll look at something like very procedural code and I'm like, oh my God, that procedural code so easy to reason about. It's amazing. And then someone else will look at it and be like, oh, how do you even manage this? It's so out of control and disgusting and ugly. And yeah. I think a lot of that is just experience. Like, I what, see what, that's what that's what I have that's what I have internalized, but I I don't think that's true. Okay, I don't know. Here's here's another angle on it. I think that it is possible to do anything poorly. Yes. Okay. That's for sure. Whether we're talking about cooking or making movies or writing code, and so you can write terrible, hard to read, poor performing, ugly functional code, just like you can write terrible, hard to read, poor performing, ugly procedural code. Mm-hmm. And so it's tough to judge a, 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 is it a style or genre, whatever of like code by the code that you've been exposed to. Right. For me, I like functional programming, but the things that I like about it are the, the way that it can compose things together. Right. So like you've got these concepts of like map and reduce and whatever all of those things and they're so they're patterns and then you can write things okay this is something i can pass to a reducer and it does this thing right it it sums and you give it a column or whatever right and it it can be very composable that way right you can you can write a a series of different functions that can be used as like sort of like a plug-in ecosystem sort of thing but you can absolutely write trash functional programming code as well and i think that I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I've, I've certainly seen more than my fair share of trash FP code mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And I've written my fair share of trash FP code to be perfectly honest. <laughs> and, and, and I think, so you're talking about from a developer experience, right? So, I mean, honestly, my take is that software is meant to be used by the people that are using it. Yeah. The, the actual end user, the customer, mm-hmm. they don't, care about your experience in writing the code. They yeah, have yeah. Abs- absolutely no idea about your ethos, your you know, artistic ability, what the code looks like. Just at the end of the day, does it work? Does it work well? And when it's broken, does it get get fixed quickly? And if if you can tick all those boxes, what does it matter? Right? Well, but the, but 
I, look, I think that's I think we're, that's two different conversations. I'm I'm specifically asking about the developer experience. Like so, you know, we we the canonical example, of course, is to argue about spaces versus tabs. And we've talked about all the reasons that tabs are actually technically more accessible. And so that's kind of a moot argument at this point, I think. But like, there are people who literally like two spaces for indentation. Like they've chose that. They started a new project. They said, I know all the options that exist. And I've decided to use two spaces to indent, which to me is Some like people the most just want to see the world crazy. burn. Right. Exactly. But like, Thank you, Batman. They like that. They, they wanted that. And I don't think that there's... And some people like to write tests. Well, but the, crazy people. But apparently, I guess what I'm, I'm saying is some like, people wear sunglasses. It's okay. I guess <laughs> it's. Okay. I want to say that I guess it's okay. I, that I guess it's okay that that they like two spaces. I don't get it, but I want to. I, I like. I I want to start living in a world where it's okay for someone to like two spaces as long as it's okay for me to like tabs and to I not. Disagree. But, <laughs> listen 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 guys 10 years from now ai will be writing all the code for us we won't really have jobs we weren't so going to talk about AI, ai tonight that was off the table <laughs> oh, sorry 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 I, I i see where you're going ben something you were thinking i was thinking about I, I don't i don't know if you were thinking about this something i was thinking about while you were kind of broaching this topic was that there was this like period sort of you know i'm I've been working professionally in web development for about 20 years now. And I think roughly halfway through my career, I started feeling very strongly like this is an art, right? This is a creative process. And I think I felt that way because it was only then really occurring to me. Like before then, I was just like, okay, you know, I'm given a, a requirement and I find a way to make the machine do that. And I, and I do the thing. And I'm not even talking about a visual thing. Like, yes, CSS, and I've gotten better at that over the years, but I'm still thinking like, okay, uh, or maybe it's because I've gotten to the point now where like, I'm, I'm not given add these seven things to the list of checkboxes. I'm, I'm given, here's a thing that we need to happen. Figure right. it out, right? And it's like, it's a very open-ended, you know, here's your budget. Here's, here's how much time you can use and go. And, and that is a very... It's, it's a strange thing to think about it as a creative process because at the end of the day, we're typing on a keyboard, right? And I guess like, okay, a poet, it also can type on a keyboard, but it doesn't feel like the same thing unless you're really kind of thinking about like the process that you go through to get there. And that was sort of an awakening for me. And so I agree. I think that there is a very subjective, creative way to take on this kind of work. And it's funny you say that because I had a customer probably like nine years ago tell me that, and I didn't ever thought of it that way. So he he was a business owner, lawyer, very analytical thinker. And in his in his mind, he thought like programmers were like these people that just took you know these little digital boxes mm-hmm. and, and drew circuits together, and you know it was a very <laughs> linear kind of way to build things. And and then as you know. We dealt with him for many years. He eventually like, he's like, I finally realized that. So you guys are more, I thought you guys were really just kind of very logical thinkers, but you're really more creative types. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, we are. We're, we're creating something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. There, there's, when you start with an idea, there's nothing. There's no, and you, so you build it, you, you kind of massage it, you work with it, you refactor it, you, you know, you iterate it. 
and then the thing's alive. Right. You you, you produce a baby and that baby has to be secure and performant mm-hmm. and usable and accessible. And yeah, just like... Well, so talk about producing babies for a second. That made me think of something, which is every now and then... I made, I made two. <laughs> Good on you, sir. <laughs> every now and then you'll I contributed. hear these... You'll not hear to these, minutes, but to, to not to my babies. You better not have. <laughs> so every now and then you'll you'll hear in these interviews stories where someone will be like, "Oh yeah, I was in medical school training to become a doctor, and in my third year, I just couldn't stand it anymore, and I dropped out of medical school, and now I do woodworking for a living, and I can't imagine being happier." And you you hear stories like that and you're like, oh, wow, this person found something that they're really excited about. And like, how lucky are they? And and then if you took that same idea and someone said, oh, you know, I was writing Ruby on Rails for years and then I switched to Cold Fusion and like suddenly everything made sense and I was so happy. Nobody has ever said that. That's, that's, that's fan. That's fanfic. <laughs> but like people would hear that story. And I think there are people in this world who would hear that story and be like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, it's just, it's just a programming yeah. language. Like it, it shouldn't matter. But you could look at some, at, at a yeah. surgeon who switches to woodwork and be like, that doesn't make any sense. Like you're just doing stuff with your hands. Like why would one be more satisfying than the other? But I think that there is just something intrinsic to the way mm-hmm. people experience the world that you just, you can't, you can't take the subjective nature out of it. And I think that there's a lot in programming that, that adheres to that. And I think, I think we're often not open-minded enough about that. Ben, Ben, you missed your calls of philosopher. I mean, you really, <laughs> you really have, honestly. You're like, you're like the Plato of cold fusion. <laughs> I mean, cold fusion is just great. <laughs> Cold Fusion was not my first programming language. It's what just, was? What was? I think I, I did ASP Classic. Did you ever do anything that was pre-web? I did QBasic. QBasic was kind of fun, actually. That was the QBasic, I think, was the first language I really tried. I think I did like QBasic and then ASP and then some PHP and then some ASP.net and then Cold Fusion. Yeah, I did uh, Basic, Apple Basic. Fortran, Perl, and then oh, yeah, Perl, ASP, 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 ASP Classic, and then Cold Fusion. Yeah. So do I have to do mine now? Is that what we're doing? I do guess it. so. I started out by making screensavers with Visual Basic. Nice. Heck yeah. And then I got my family kicked off of AOL a bunch of times. We talked about this. <laughs> uh, yeah, you did. <laughs> You're like, yada, yeah. yada, yada. I'm not allowed yeah. in certain states. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cold Fusion was my first web language. I guess, well, so I did uh, Perl via CGI, I guess is how you would r- explain that. Yeah. Right? CGI. Yeah. And then, then Cold Fusion. I dabbled very briefly with PHP after I had been exposed to Cold Fusion because it was free. And I was like, well, I want to do this in my free time, but I'm not buying a license. So, yeah. I think I tried python briefly for like three days and i the white space yeah. like the yep. the yep. the white space just didn't jive with me yeah like no two spaces <laughs> can't do it i'm an artiste i cannot work this way <laughs> <laughs> all right all right all right let's kill it there yeah 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 We're done. so this episode of working code was brought to you by brain surgery by woodworkers i've got a chisel <laughs> and i will take your money
And listeners like you, if you are enjoying the show and you want to make sure that we can keep putting more of whatever this is out into the universe, then you should consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons cover our recording and editing costs, and we couldn't do this every week without them. Special thanks go out to our top patrons, Monty and Giancarlo. You guys rock. We really appreciate your long time and continued support. And you know what? Just as a blanket, also thank you to all of our patrons at every level. Having you all mm-hmm. on board makes us a super stable thing. Oh, crap. We have a new patron. I, I know I like to say thank you when you join up. And I, I saw you this week. Let's see. You are Adrian. Adrian Bremen. Thank you for joining. Happy to have you. Welcome yeah, to the welcome. party, pal. <laughs> and uh, Yippee-ki-yay-o. Oh, you did it wrong. You're fired. <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay. Right. M or effer. Anyway, where, where was I? After show. Uh, all of our patrons get access to our after show and they get early access to all of our episodes. We record on Thursdays. Usually patrons have that episode in their podcast app on Monday, the following after our recording. And then it goes out to public like two weeks, just a day shy of two weeks after we record. So if you want to get early access and our after show, then you should support us on Patreon. And you can do that for as little as $4 a month and actually cheaper if you sign up for a whole year at once. What did I say? Oh yeah, patreon.com slash working code pod in case I didn't already say that. Homework this week. I'm going to throw this out there again. We're talking about the book club. It's something that we really want to do again soon. Join our Discord. Look for the book club channel and help us get this thing started. So you can go to workingcode.dev slash discord to do that. That's going to do it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then... Remember, your heart matters, you beautiful, subjective code artists. (laughs) You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.